One of the great old hymns that I can remember from uh, my uh, youngest remembrance that we have sung in the Lord's Church is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. We probably, so many of us probably know it by, by heart, at least part of it, if not all of it. And that great old hymn begins with the words, What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a fellowship. I'd like for us to think about that fellowship this morning. What a fellowship. What a fellowship we have if indeed we understand and appreciate what is involved in fellowship and if we are partakers of that fellowship. And I'd like for us to go to 1 John chapter 1. And in 1 John chapter 1, in those 10 verses, I'd like for us to look at the subject of fellowship from John's inspired perspective as he reveals to us some of the qualities, some of the characteristics of fellowship. Fellowship is literally a participation. Specifically, it is a joint participation. We jointly participate. That's what fellowship involves. It is a participation. And the fellowship about which John writes is the greatest possible participation, joint participation, that the human mind could ever contemplate, could ever experience. And in this chapter, I believe we have clearly revealed to us some very important characteristics of this participation, this fellowship in which all of us must be participants if we are to have any hope of eternity in heaven. We're going to see that in this participation about which John writes by inspiration, there are prerequisites to it. It's not just available for anyone who says, well, I'm, I'm in this participation. I'm a participant. I want to be, so I declare myself a participant. No, there are prerequisites. There are prerequisites to entering into this participation, this fellowship. And then John is going to remind us of the preciousness of this fellowship. And then he's going to tell us about the preservation of the fellowship. Once we have met the prerequisites, once we've entered into that fellowship, that participation, and we appreciate to the fullest extent the preciousness of it, how is it that we, how is it that we preserve it? And finally, in conclusion, we'll see the propitiation without which there could be no participation. In these ten verses, let's read them together. I'm reading from the New King James. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Beautiful treatise on fellowship in those ten verses. He begins that which was from the beginning. In other words, from eternity we have looked upon and heard and seen the one from eternity with our eyes, our hands have handled concerning the eternal word of life, the living word, the word that is used there in John's account of the gospel, John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the word that in John 1.14 became flesh and dwelt among us. And here in verse 2 he says the life was manifested. In other words, that, that word did become flesh and dwelt among us and became the express revelation of, of God. The concept of God, the revelation of God became flesh and communicated to us a picture and an image of God that gave us a full picture. He who has seen me, remember Jesus said, has seen the Father. Did Jesus exist? Did he live among men? Well, John says, I've heard him, I've seen him, I've looked upon, I've handled, I've touched him, this eternal word that became flesh. And he says, I am one of those who can declare to you bear witness to you that that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested to us, I can bear witness. I have heard him speak. I have seen him with my own eyes. I have handled or touched him. And the idea of seen doesn't mean I got a glimpse of him. <laughs> no, the word seen indicates I beheld him. The idea is an intent gaze. Oh, yes. John, an eyewitness. An eyewitness. And therefore, it is John as that witness or one of those witnesses who in this great chapter, first of all, sell, tells us concerning this precious fellowship, this wonderful fellowship, this joint participation into which we must enter in order to one day be with that word of life for all eternity. He says there are prerequisites to entering into that fellowship. Look at, again, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we what? We declare to you. Look at the word that. That you also may have fellowship with us. There's your prerequisite. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. What was that involved? What does that involve? It involves the gospel, doesn't it? John is saying that that which we have seen and heard, in other words, the Word of God from the living Word, the eternal Word, that is what we're declaring to you. For what purpose, John? So that you may have fellowship with us. That tells us that fellowship cannot be obtained simply upon a desire to have it. There are prerequisites that must be met. What are they? They are the facts of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They are the commands 
of the gospel, clearly taught by John and others in Scripture that you must believe that He is the Christ, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, that you must act upon that belief by repenting of sins, turning from your sin, changing your mind about your sin, that you must confess with your lips that you believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Jesus said, who confesses me, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before the Father in heaven. And yes, you must be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. As Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. In other words, the prerequisites of fellowship are the terms of admission into the kingdom of God, the church to which one is added when he obeys the gospel. That's what must occur before fellowship can ever be enjoyed. Now what does that tell me? That I simply cannot declare that I am in fellowship with those who have not met the prerequisites. And that when I make such a declaration, and when I enter into a relationship based upon that false declaration, then I have betrayed the very basic teaching of Scripture. That's why as much as we might love to extend fellowship to all those who desire to have fellowship with us and we with them, we cannot do that on any other basis other than the basis of John's prerequisites and those elsewhere in Scripture that are completely consistent with one another. An individual, in order to enter into this joint participation, this fellowship, must meet the prerequisites. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that, in order that, in order that what, John? You may have fellowship, participation with us. It's sad today that the ecumenical movement, which is said to have had its inception really around 1970 and has grown since that time, has reached a point to where the fellowship about which John writes here has for most people completely lost its significance and lost its meaning. Because fellowship is basically extended on, on any basis uh, other than a scriptural basis. But what we're reminded of here in this great chapter is that there are specific prerequisites. And unless I have met those prerequisites, then I cannot have that fellowship. Fellowship with whom? Fellowship with all others who've met those same prerequisites. We speak of those of like precious faith. Like precious faith, and that's a wonderful term. Like, in other words, identical. Precious faith. A faith that what? Has manifested itself in meeting the terms of admission into the kingdom obeying the gospel as we have just outlined it through belief, repentance, confession, and baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But you know that word precious in the phrase like precious faith reminds us of our second point that John gives us here. And that is that once we've met the prerequisites in order to enter into that precious participation, it is precious beyond description. Look at the latter part of, of verse 3 and verse 4. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Notice the latter part of verse 3. And truly 
our fellowship. In other words, we've declared to you the prerequisites. You meet those prerequisites. You enter into fellowship with us, but not only with us. Think about it. And our fellowship is also with whom? With the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that tell us something very, very important about the preciousness of this fellowship about which John writes? How precious is it? It is so precious because it is not only fellowship that is horizontal in nature, if you will, fellowship that is enjoyed by those who've obeyed the same terms in becoming Christians, but it's a fellowship that is vertical as well, and that's the crucial aspect. Oh, there are a lot of people in this world religiously who say they have fellowship with one another, and they do have a type of fellowship based upon, tragically, their obedience or like obedience to the creeds and traditions of men. They've obeyed the same thing, but tragically it is, it is not what Scripture teaches, but they're in fellowship with one another. But what about the vertical aspect of that fellowship? You see, John says there are two aspects. It's not only the fellowship that we have with one another, that horizontal fellowship, if you will, but our fellowship, he says, is with whom? With the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the fellowship, the joint participation that is so crucial to our salvation is a fellowship that, yes, is enjoyed by those of like precious faith, as we use that term, but it's also a fellowship that is vertical, that extends to the Father and to the Son. How precious is that? How precious is the thought of your being in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, and the Holy Spirit for that matter, the three persons of the Godhead. How precious is that relationship? It's precious beyond all other relationships, and yet that's what you enjoy this very morning. If you're a faithful child of God who has met the prerequisites to enter into this participation, then that participation extends not only horizontally, but also to God Himself, to the Godhead. You are in a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that is so precious that it should produce what? Verse 4, listen again. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John says, I'm reminding you of the preciousness of the fellowship you enjoy, and as you contemplate the preciousness of that relationship, what should that produce within you? A joy that is what? Pretty good? <laughs> no, a joy that is what? Full joy. Fullness of joy because of what we have, because of that in which we participate, and because of those with whom we are participating, namely the Godhead Three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John wanted his readers for all time to know and to appreciate the preciousness of having fellowship with God and Christ. And incidentally, when he says in verse 4, we write to you that your joy may be full, doesn't that remind us of, of how powerful the written word is? John didn't say, I'm going to send you some sort of better felt than told experience, some direct miraculous operation of the Spirit so that you can experience fullness of joy. He said, I'm writing these things to you that your joy may be what? Full. Tells me that what he writes produces full joy. If what he writes produces full joy, I don't need anything other than what's written in order to have full joy. There's no way around that. No way around that. Doesn't that tell me I need to be spending an awful lot of time with this book? 
because it's the only thing that can give me the fullness of joy, in this case based upon the recognition of the preciousness of the fellowship that I have, not only with those of like precious faith, but with God himself. If you look at what John wrote in his gospel account in John chapter 17 as he recorded the prayer of Jesus there, what is truly the Lord's Prayer, what did Jesus pray in verses 20 and 21? I do not pray for these alone, those are the apostles to whom he refers. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their what? Word. There again is the emphasis on the word and the power of it. That they all may be what? One. Be one where? In Christ. There's that fellowship again. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That's what the Lord prayed for, and that's what John says has been achieved at the time that he wrote this first epistle. Writing to Christians, writing to Christians who had achieved that fellowship, on what basis? Upon obedience to the Word. One in us, Jesus prayed. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that kind of closeness, that kind of relationship, that kind of preciousness of participation with God the Father and with God the Son. And what should that produce? Again, verse 4, a fullness of joy. If you look at 3 John, in John's third uh, epistle to Gaius, written to him in verses uh, 3 and 4, he wrote there to Gaius, For I rejoiced greatly, when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. Well, how do we walk in truth? Verse 5 of 1 John 1, by walking according to that message. And this is that message, he said, which we have heard from him and declare to you, that gets us back to the gospel again, that what? That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so if we're in fellowship with God, we're in the light. We're in the light. But we have to meet the prerequisites in order to enter into that fellowship. We should then appreciate the preciousness of that fellowship because it extends not only horizontally but vertically to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But then we ask, how do we preserve it? Does John tell us anything about the preservation of that fellowship? Well, again, as we've talked about so often, there are so many in the religious world today who tell us there's nothing to do to preserve fellowship, that if you're in fellowship, you're always in fellowship. You're saved. Once saved, you're always saved. Well, as I've often said, here's another of the hundreds of passages in Scripture that clearly deny that. If that were true, why would John tell us anything about preserving fellowship. If once you enter into that fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and with those of like precious faith, there's nothing that can change that, why would John ever address in this or any other place? Or would any other inspired writer address the subject of preserving what you've gained? And yet he does. Listen to it. Verses 6, beginning. If we say that we have fellowship with him, 
and walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, 8, and 9, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the preservation of fellowship, verses 6 through 9. How do we preserve fellowship? Is there anything we must do in order to make sure we preserve this precious relationship into which we've been privileged to enter by obedience to the simple terms of the gospel? Oh, yes. What are they? Well, I see two things here in verses 6 through 9 that are absolutely essential to preserving fellowship. Practice righteousness and pray for forgiveness. Look at verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and what? Walk in darkness, we lie and do not what? Practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Practice righteousness. In other words, there has to be activity. There has to be forward movement. There has to be a walking in the light. There has to be a practicing of righteousness. And in this same epistle at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7, listen to what John writes that reinforces this. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. If you ever needed one verse that would defeat the false doctrine of once saved, always saved, that'd be a real good one, wouldn't it? It's almost as, John, as if John is anticipating Little children, don't let the once saved, always saved people deceive you because he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He's our goal. He's our standard of righteousness. And we seek to practice righteousness as he is righteous. And so to preserve fellowship, I must practice righteousness. In other words, I must walk in the light as he, as God, is in the light. In Psalm 119, 172, the psalmist there declares, My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. So if I'm to practice righteousness, and the psalmist reminds me that all of God's commandments are righteousness, then I'm to practice the commandments. In other words, I'm to keep the commandments. That's how I preserve fellowship. Preservation of fellowship involves practicing righteousness. But can I do that perfectly? Can I be perfect in my practice? In other words, I can follow the pattern of the New Testament. I certainly have a clearly revealed pattern. And I know how we are to worship. I know about the organization of the church. I know clearly what is revealed. But in my personal life... Can I be sinless, in other words? Will I, will I ever fall short in my personal life? Of course I will. John deals with that right here when he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now, is John saying that we're to practice righteousness, meaning sinless perfection? Well, no, he couldn't be because he, in verse 8, says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So what's the key? As we practice righteousness, we realize that as human beings, we do fall short in our personal lives from time to time because we're human, 
But that's why God has provided prayer for forgiveness for those who are to preserve the fellowship into which they've entered. So we continue to practice righteousness following his commandments, but we fall short at times. We transgress God's will in our personal life, so therefore we what? Pray. We practice righteousness. We pray for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and listen to it, and to cleanse, and the word means keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. You keep on walking, keep on practicing, keep on praying. Keep on practicing righteousness, keep on praying for forgiveness, and you have that wonderful preservation of the precious fellowship about which John writes. But the concluding thought is verse 10, which reminds us that all this is accomplished by keeping his what? Holy Spirit directly and miraculously involved in our lives? No. No. Not necessary. Not possible. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. What is it that must be in us? For us to know how to meet the prerequisites of fellowship so that we can enter into that joint participation. What is it that reminds us constantly of the preciousness of that fellowship? What is it that tells us how to preserve that fellowship? That gets us back to the word. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his what? Holy Spirit is not in us? No. His word is not in us. The only way the Holy Spirit is in us is through the influence of the word. The all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God. But you know this participation about which John reminds us here in this great first chapter of 1 John, as we said at the outset, is possible only because of propitiation. In 1 John 2, verse 2, And he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And then in chapter 4, that same word is used again by the same writer. Verse 10, in this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Participation can only come because of the propitiation. What does that word indicate? Making right again with God that which man himself made wrong by his sin. Appeasing God through the wonderful sacrifice, the only one that could do it, of the sinless Son of God. Jesus Christ, that's love. That's love that he was willing to do that. That he was willing to become that propitiation, that appeasement for our sins so that we could have the prerequisites that he has set forth in his word, knowing that when we meet those prerequisites, believing, repenting, confessing Jesus to be the Christ and being buried in baptism, we enter into a relationship, a participation that's precious beyond description. A relationship that we can preserve because the word has been given that gives us all that we need to know to be able to preserve that fellowship. 
if that word is in us as we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light, practicing righteousness and praying for forgiveness. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Are you leaning on those everlasting arms? Not if you haven't met the prerequisites. Not if you have not expressed your belief in Jesus as the Christ, repented of your sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. How much clearer could the Lord have made it? Because in that burial, the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse you from sin, to allow you to rise, to walk in newness of life, to begin to preserve that precious fellowship into which you've entered. How? By walking in the light, practicing righteousness, praying for forgiveness, because you have that wonderful privilege as a child of God to approach the throne of heaven through your high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ, and know that he will hear and know that he will answer in accordance with his will as you pray according to his will. And then, one day, when this life is over, oh, what a fellowship will be magnified many times over as we see him as he is, face to face, for all eternity, in a state of bliss that's beyond the comprehension of the human finite mind. But oh, how we ought to try to comprehend it, and oh, how we ought to anticipate it, and let that anticipation translate into obedience to his will, that we might have that fellowship now and for all eternity. If you've once known the preciousness of fellowship by meeting those prerequisites, but you know this morning that for you, preservation has not been a priority and that you have not continued to practice righteousness, that you have ceased to walk in the light, come back to the light where God is, where God is light, through repentance, confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in a public way. And let us pray with you and for you to the God who loved you so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins and mine. As we stand to sing, will you come?